we're going to do is we're going to open up our Bibles to Romans. We're in the book of Romans. We're, uh, uh, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know we've been doing a four-week uh, kind of introduction to the entire book of Romans. And uh, we're going to now just keep continuing into the book. We're going to, this is our third week of looking at introduction, and I kind of want to get that for us because in so many ways, Romans is a book that maybe a lot of you have heard or maybe spent some time around, but I think there's a lot of, of aspects of it that it's not that we're wrong in our thinking. My hope is just as we go through the book of Romans this time, you'll see there's even, even more to it than I think than what was there before. Now, what we've been trying to do, and this is really important, we've kind of been trying to use like metaphors like, like songs and music and different aspects to kind of help us understand it. But if you remember right, the very first week, we talked about this idea of listening to the correct song. And, and we, we talked about within every song, there's a melody, there's a rhythm to it. And what God is doing in this world, and even the book of Romans, has to it this rhythm to it, a, a melody to it. And we're trying to hear, because that's the word that we talked about with hupakuo, it means to listen under. We're trying to listen to what God is calling us to do. Now, again, if you remember right, there's a huge difference between hearing and listening. Um, for those of you that are men in here, you've probably heard your wife at some point say there's a huge difference between you heard me and you've listened to me. And what we're going to try to do is to truly listen to what God's telling us to do. Now, last week, what we talked about, though, was this idea of a story. Now, the thing we wanted everybody to understand, including me, all of us in this room, is that everybody in some way lives by a story. And if you remember right, we talked about all of us in this room have an understanding of where this world came from, why the world's messed up, where the world is going. And we even have an understanding within, our, within us about where the, where the, or how this world is going to be fixed. Now, in that, though, how you choose kind of the five parts of a story, whether we're talking the characters, the setting, the theme, the conflict, the resolution, is all going to be dependent on specifically who you think the main character is. And so last week, we really laid out this idea that the main character is not us. We're not it. The main character all throughout this is our triune God and the way that Paul continually speaks to us about this main character, Jesus, who is King of Kings, he's Lord of Lords, he's the Messiah of Israel, is that he is who the story's about. Now, the interesting thing about that, though, that I was thinking through as I was, I was wrestling through the book of Romans is that it would be almost on one level great if life really op operated by a script, wouldn't it? Like every morning you wake up and God's like, hey, here's the script for today. Um, I'm going to lay it out for you. Here's what's going to take place. What I try all the time to do with my children, but they don't listen to me. And, but it's just this idea of wouldn't it almost be great if there was a script? But we know this every day. There is no script to the day. No doubt there, there's the reality of God's word. It tells us, it gives us commands to obey. It helps us to understand who God is. But every single day, whether we know it or not, I'm just gonna choose to use a word today, we improv. We're constantly looking at every situation and trying to understand how is it that we now are supposed to walk through this. So yesterday morning, I woke up, whether I wanted to or not, my youngest one, the reason I woke up, he had slid into the bed with us. And when he slid into the bed with us, I didn't know about it. And the only reason I even woke up is because he coughed right into my face. <laughs> and if you can't hear it in my voice, my little Petri dish gave me a cold. Now, that wasn't part of my script, but now I've got to figure out what to do with it, right? And then you know this from the moment you wake up, everything comes at you at a blitzing rate, and you oftentimes don't know what to do. But this is what we're going to talk about today, is that even though there's no script, that doesn't mean that we can't live in the way that God's called us to, but we've got to learn. And here's the word we're going to use, again, just to kind of metaphorically lay it out there. 
We need to learn how it is that we improv or how it is that we perform the correct improv. Now, for those of you that don't know what improv is, does anybody know who this is? Wayne Brady, right? Everybody know who Wayne Brady is? If you've ever seen um, the, the, the TV show, what's it called? Yeah, that one right there. But one of my most enjoyable things with him is people give him like the name of a song and then they give him like certain words of a song. And then all of a sudden the band starts to play and he improvs an entire song. It seriously is one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen before. Now, we look at a guy like Wayne Brady today, but we miss the fact that long before that, there were guys like, who's this in the middle? Tim Conway, right? Lucille Ball, and what's the other lady? Okay, I'm just finding out who's really old in here. <laughs> Anyways, that's good to know. Good confession right there. It's good for the soul. But those were probably three of the greatest kind of improv type people that there are out there is that they would be given kind of an, 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 a script, but you never knew where they were going to go in a lot of ways. But the whole goal was to make people laugh. A lot of you too might also understand who this guy is. Who's that? Robin Williams. In fact, everything I've read about him, every movie he ever did was a constant state of improv. Now, it's not just comedies that come out that way. How about this one? Do you remember this one? The Shining, who's the guy? Did, there, did you guys know that that line, here's Johnny, from that particular scene was actually improv It wasn't even intended to be in the script. Now, I say that not to glorify what these people do, but to just talk about this idea of what improv is. Improv is a form of theater in which many or kind of all the aspects of the performance are unplanned or unscripted and created spontaneously by the performers. Now, every day, again, whether we know it or not, maybe it almost goes back to this idea of William Shakespeare when he said, all the world is a what? A stage. Even the way the Bible talks about it is we are put on a stage, both in front of the angelic realm and the entire world, and God doesn't give us a script, but that does not mean we don't have what we need to live every single day to be able to glorify God. But the thing is, is we have to understand then, if I'm doing this improv of sorts that God has called me to, what that means, Ephesians 5, 15 and following, is that every single moment matters. Our improv that we're doing in this world is not a comedy. In fact, I would say this, in many ways, it's deadly serious, but we need to know at the core what we are about, because if I don't know at the core about what I am all about and what God calls me to be about, I will start to improv the wrong things. That means at the core, if you're about making money, you will improv every aspect of your life to make money. If at the core, you're about trying to figure out how to create safety for me and my children, then at the core, that's what you will make your improv about. In other words, what's at the core of you dictates the entire life that you have. Now, what Paul's really trying to get at in the book of Romans, Romans is, is that what we truly believe, our view of the world, is going to dictate how we live. And that's why in Romans 12, 2, he said, don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world be your guide on how you improv in the world, how you live for Jesus. Now, what he's going to do for us, and this is really important, so I'm gonna, we're just going to spend our entire two weeks for the next two weeks on two verses is we're going to really gain this idea then, okay, Paul, if this is true, how do we do this? Now, what he's going to do with Romans 1, 16 and 17 is he's going to give us two important aspects, and I'm going to, I'm going to lay this out for us here really quick. On one end, we're going to talk about what the gospel is and what it means to believe or to have faith. We're going to talk about that this morning. 
And then next week, we're going to talk about righteousness, the righteousness of God or what it means to be the righteous. Okay, so we're going to look at those two things in and around this verse. But now listen to me. This is so important. He's getting at, at the core of who we are, what do you honestly believe? This is so important. Whatever you believe at your core is how you will live your life. And I would say this, the reason that so many people have shipwrecked their lives is they've got the wrong core. And so this is what Paul's going to do. And we're going to look at two questions. Now let me just read this for us to kind of get an idea of where we're going. And then we're going to start working through this. Here's what he says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now for probably most of you in this room, you've heard that, those two verses before. You've, you've, you understand that for the most part, most people believe this is the core of it. But what we're going to ask today about these two verses are two important things, is what is the gospel and what does it mean to believe or to have faith? Now, generally what it means when we say, what is the gospel? Let's just start with that one. We have within it this idea of what does it mean to be saved, or this word in there, the salvation. So in other words, what we mean by salvation is that God loves us. He has a perfect plan for our lives. We're sinners by birth. We, we need to be awakened to our sinfulness. Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins, and in coming, he came so that we might truly be forgiven he came, and if we trust in him, receive him as Savior, ask him into our hearts, we can be saved and justified. And when we die then, we go to heaven and not to hell. And I across the board, everybody would say, yes, we can find that in the Bible, which is absolutely true. But one of the things that I want to do for us this morning is not to discount that. That is true. We find it in the scriptures. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not about you and me. It is about a person, Jesus. No doubt this message, right, that's been told for 2,000 years is a message of Jesus that when people believe in it and come to it by faith, they are saved. Okay, so everybody hear me. I am not saying that this message doesn't save, but this message is not primarily about you and your salvation. This message is primarily about Jesus. Now, what's so cool about this, though, is that if I really do see this in kind of its full-orbed, kind of all-dimensional look, I start to see that the gospel is huge. But if I only see it in one kind of vein or one dimension, my gospel, and this is the way I would say it, I think our gospel, the way we view it, is too small. So what I think Paul's going to do with the book of Romans, again, this is important where we're going to go, is he's going to take what should be the core of who we are, this gospel message about a person, Jesus, he's going to place it into the core of who we are, and he's going to show us this is so much bigger than anything that you've ever imagined. And in fact, if all I leave it as is in its one kind of time dimensional reality, is this idea of how I came to know Jesus or got saved, What's going to happen then is, is I will begin to think to myself, now I'm good. I now need to just bide my time, evangelize some people so I don't feel guilty, and just keep doing this till Jesus gets back. But that's the gospel one-dimensional. Paul is going to talk about a gospel that is huge, something that you can bank your life on, 
Something that's going to cause you to live differently. Something that stirred inside of people 2,000 years ago that caused them to go all over the world in a short amount of time, about 300 years of the then known world, to spread it. Something in them, it was so much bigger than just how do I get saved. There's something about this King Jesus that drove them differently. And I would say it's this way. Salvation is the result of the gospel, but it's not the core center of it. There is something so much bigger. So the question is, then what's the gospel about? Well, the good news is Paul's going to tell us a lot about this idea of the gospel. In fact, he all throughout every letter he writes, he includes in this word of gospel. And in a lot of ways, it just means good news, right? That's what we know about it. In some ways, it's good news. Now, when he came to Rome, look what he says in there. He said in verse 15, I'm eager to actually preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, in so many ways, people would look at that and say, wait, I thought the gospel was for who? Unbelievers. So why is Paul going to come preach the gospel to people that are believers? Oh, I, I bet you he didn't mean the believers. No, he did. Look at verses 6 and 7. He has in there those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those who are in Rome who are, look at this, loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from who? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I can't wait to come preach to you the gospel. Why? Because it's the core reality of who we are. It's Jesus. That's why at Cornerstone we preach Jesus. It's because that is the core of the gospel. So what else, Paul? Why do we preach the gospel then to the saved? Well, one of the things that I love is Tim Keller, and in one of the books that he wrote, and called the, or in one of his messages, The Centrality of the Gospel, he said this, and I think this is very important for us. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. This is so important. It's not just the first step in how we come to know Jesus. It's more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is, is now, or excuse me, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress into the kingdom. We're not just justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. And this is where we got it from Romans 1, 16 and 17. It's bigger than that. So what is the gospel about? Now watch this. In Romans 1, 1 through 3, and if you've got your Bibles, you can look at this. It just says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Look at this. Set apart for the what? Gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this is so important to three, concerning. That word means I'm about ready to tell you what the gospel is all about. Now, watch what he does. Concerning his Jesus. It's concerning Jesus, who is descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom, with the result, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus. But the gospel is about Jesus. Well, what about, is it just in Romans or is it somewhere else? Well, the very next letter, 1 Corinthians 15, watch this. Verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, and I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Well, what's it about, Paul? For I delivered of you of first 
importance. Now listen to me. That word literally means the core, the the essence of what the gospel is about. It is the identity of it, the basic idea, the most important aspect. Well, what is the most important aspect, Paul? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, her sake. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he came to me. Romans, 1 Corinthians, It is not primarily about our salvation. It's about Jesus. Okay, well, what about the rest of it? Well, let me give you a letter at the very end of his life, in case you don't believe me yet, that this is what the gospel is about. In 2 Timothy 2, when he's getting to the end of his life and he's writing to Timothy, what does he say to him? Remember Jesus Christ. And do what am I supposed to remember about him? Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my what? Gospel. In fact, I would say this, so much of the gospel that we make about ourselves in some ways is narcissistic and misses the point about what this is all about, which is Jesus. We've come to Jesus because we don't want to go to hell. We've come to Jesus because we want to go to heaven. We've come to Jesus because we want our life better. But how many of us come to Jesus because it's Jesus? He is the risen one, meaning he is the Messiah, the one foretold about in all of the scriptures. He is not just the Messiah of Israel, but the King and the Lord of the entire world who is here to make peace and set all things straight and right and is gonna reign and rule on high and bring all things to the shalom that God has promised us from the very beginning, but it is about him. Paul just beats this, this rhythm. In fact, that word to remember is keep it in front of you all of the time. Don't ever lose sight of the fact of what the gospel is about. It's Jesus. It's his story. And if we begin to make the result, which is our salvation, which is so wonderful and so awesome and so incredible and miss the fact that it primarily is about him, our improv will begin to get messed up because we will think it's about me. So it's not first about getting saved. So what is it about then? It is about the king. It is about the one foretold in scripture. It's about the one who died and was buried. It's about the one who rose again. It's about the ascended king. It's about the one that's returning one day. It's his story. It's what the four gospels are all about. It's the story that they told in the book of Acts. It's the story that they've told for 2,000 years. And the only reason that you even know Jesus and are saved by Jesus is because you heard the story of the king. That's who we are. That's our core. It saves people, redeems people from sin. It transforms their life. We're given the Holy Spirit. We're able to now have our minds transformed. We're made different. But the gospel is not first about us. It's about King Jesus. Is everybody with me? King Jesus. That's where we got this definition. You're going to get to clap here in a little bit. This is going to be awesome. The gospel now is not first about getting saved. Now, everybody hear me. 
This story saves people, okay? So don't, it's not, I'm not saying it doesn't save people. It does save people, but it is first, at its core, the good news of Jesus being made manifest as the Messiah of Israel, the Lord of the world, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This is about Jesus. That's what we're living for. I don't want my kids just to live for a bare minimum of avoidance of hell. I want them to see and glory in and be blown away by this King Jesus. And so literally they will sell everything they have to follow him, the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field. If we just make it about hell avoidance, I believe we could potentially damn a lot of people to hell because they never embraced Jesus. They just embraced avoiding something. We have to keep King Jesus in front of us. Now with this then, what do we improv? Or how do we then improv? If this is really true, okay, so I agree with you, Todd. I, I see it in the book of, of not only Romans and 1 Corinthians, but yeah, it echoes true with me, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Okay, I get this kind of thing. Then what is it then that I'm supposed to do? How does this work its way out? And I'm glad you asked me. And we're gonna talk about faith. Who's that? George Michael wrote one of the most incredible songs. Let me give you the words to it. Because I got to have faith. I got to have faith. Because I got to have faith, the faith, the faith. <laughs> I got to have the faith, the faith, right? How about this guy? Who's that? Billy Joel, keeping the faith. I'm keeping the faith, yeah. That's why I'm keeping the faith. Yeah, 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 keeping the faith, right? You guys are awful at this game. Gosh. All right, let me, let me give you one more chance. Anybody know who this is? I'm forever yours. Okay, you're getting better, all right? Now, here's the problem with it, and I'll give you if you're country fans. Anybody know who that is? Brooks and Dunn. Okay, so they wrote a song called Believe. Now, here's the problem with the word faith and belief in our world today. We use it in such a flippant way that the Bible never chose to use it. That when we talk about this gospel, this grand reality of Jesus and his kingship and his reign and his rule, this faith that we're talking about is so much bigger than a wish and a prayer. It's so much bigger than, I would say this, wishful thinking of any kind. I remember I got this card from somebody, and this is what they wrote. I believe that for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Do you know that for sure? How about this one? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. How about this one from the Pointer Sisters? You gotta believe. Or how about this one? You just need the faith of a child, which is absolutely true, but in so many ways, it doesn't recognize what Jesus was saying. Or how about this one? You need to live by faith, meaning you gotta go do big, crazy things for God. I think in this, man, there's something so much bigger than just those little definitions or what these people sang about. 
This idea of faith, and just if you, if you kind of were writing this down in your notes, if this gospel is really so huge and the story about the King Jesus, the story being the climax of it all, being the king, that means then that faith is the proper or the fitting response to that gospel. If he's really that, if he's really this exalted and this glorious, if he's really the one that the angels sang about, if he's really this one, then we only have one response that's fitting, and that is by faith. So what is faith then? Well, he tells us a little bit about this, that it's a salvation to everyone, and here's this word that believes. But what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? Well, on one side of it, in Hebrews 1, we learn that it's faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. In other words, that's how we knew that they were truly followers of Jesus. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, what he's saying here is that you can trust. I can believe this. There's a cognitive reality to it. It's not more, but it's also not less of this fact that when faith, it's not just a blind leap, is that I can look out in the entire world and understand that this existence that we live in did not come from a random collision of matter and of energy and suddenly life spilled into it. That is baloney. That is how the world sees faith. Authentic faith looks out there and starts to realize there must be a God. Not only must there be a God, but this faith that's outlined inside of the scriptures, I would dare any of you that don't know Jesus to spend your time in it because this is the only story that answers all of life's questions. It's the only story that answers where did we honestly come from. It's the only story that answers why this world is such a mess. It's the only book that answers how in the world is this ever going to be fixed. And it's the only story that answers where is everything going. It is the only comprehensive true story that you can bank your life on and God doesn't ask us to check our heads at the door he calls us whether past or present or future to trust him and I would say this faith is trust but it's more see on one end and we're going to keep one word in front of us this idea of trust because we can see now when we get to Hebrews eleven six that without faith now right it's impossible to please him For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. You must trust him, that he rewards those who honestly seek him. That's trust. But let me show you a different side of faith. Another side of it comes to us in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Let me see if I can pull this out for you. When Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, oftentimes we feel that he's not guilty or he doesn't feel like he's got guilty feelings, but he's got something so much bigger in mind there. Every aspect of that particular time, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, that Jews rejected the gospel because they looked at Jesus and said, there is no way he can be the Messiah. The Gentiles and the Greeks looked and said, there is no way he can be Kurios. He can't be Lord. And anybody that believes he could be the Messiah, the Jews said, is crazy. And anyone that says that Jesus is the Lord, according to Greeks, then he is nutty. There is no way that can be true. And Paul looks back at all of them and says, no, that is absolutely wrong because I have surrendered my life to the honest, true King of Kings and I'm no longer ashamed. See, it's not just on one end, this idea of trust, but let me add another idea behind faith. It's surrender. 
All throughout the book of Acts, in Acts 2, in Acts 8, in Acts 11, even by the time we get to Acts 17, whether Paul's talking to Jewish people or to Gentile people, the Greeks, he's constantly thrown in front of them. Peter is throwing in front of them. You have to repent. In other words, what's he saying? To repent means that I have come across the true story of all true stories. I have lived the wrong one, and I am repenting. I'm coming and realizing that I need to learn and live the true story. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed, he's saying to them, I have learned the real story. I've learned it. I have, and this is the word I would use, bent my knee to the king. I've experienced him. I know him. See, this is where I think our gospel is a little one-dimensional. For the longest time, we've tried to get people just to assent But the Bible says it's so much more than assenting. It is bending the knee to the king. It's acknowledging him for who he is, acknowledging he is the apex. He is the climax of the story. I can now forego my story and absolutely fold myself into his incredible story and live wholeheartedly for him. Does it come overnight? Oh my gosh, no. It is something we have to journey with him all of our lives to be able to learn. But faith has within it the idea, he's king and I am not, and I'm gonna surrender. But I would say it's even bigger than that. It's not just trust alone. It's not just surrender alone. Because Paul calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Now we as Americans, don't we hate that term? I'm not not a servant to no one. But Paul in Romans 6 says you're a servant to something. You're either a servant to sin, which leads to death, or you're a servant to righteousness, which leads to life. And Paul says, I'll tell you who I am a servant to. King Jesus. So faith has within it an element of trust. Faith has within it an element of surrender. But faith also has an element within it of allegiance. He's the king. Now let me try to explain to you allegiance so you kind of understand it. I don't know how many of you remember Montgomery Wards. Does everybody remember Montgomery Wards in here? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it no longer exists, so it's not a, a great store. But there was another store that's still around called Sears. Remember those? Those are called department stores, kids. They don't exist anymore, except online. Anyway, so a friend of mine had a job at Montgomery Wards. And he loved his job at Montgomery Wards, and he was the head of sporting goods at Montgomery Wards. I mean, we're talking high up in Montgomery Wards, if you know what I'm saying. But he realized later, because the manager of Sears called up and said, hey, you want to take over the sporting goods at Sears and I will pay you three extra dollars an hour. And he quickly decided it was the Lord's will and left to go to Sears. Now at Christmas time, the manager at Montgomery Wards called up and says, hey, could you come fill in some hours because I need some help? And I still remember that phone call, him saying, I can't come work with you unless I first call my boss at Sears. And if my boss at Sears says I can come work for you, then I will. That is allegiance. We understand who the boss is. I don't go work for others unless I talk to the king. 
And what Paul's doing in this, again, is he's laying out this idea of now what does it mean to understand the gospel? Here's the gospel. Here's what it's about. Here's the king of who this gospel is. But at the end of the day, I need to understand I need to trust the right story. I need to surrender myself to the correct story. And I need to live or journey with and improv now the wrong story. If I keep that at the center of my life, Paul says your mind is being transformed and you're living for Jesus. That's what we're doing. Every aspect of our life. Over the last probably about 25 years as a pastor, probably the starkest place I've seen this reality of people and whether or not they're living for Jesus is when I go to their funerals. I went to a funeral a couple years ago and I'll never forget this. The whole family's like, oh yeah, crazy follower of Jesus, just loves Jesus. And the whole funeral had nothing to do with Jesus until the very end, this guy stands up and kind of talks to me. and goes, oh yeah, but by the way, he really loved Jesus and then went back to his life. I sat there going, God, don't make that my funeral. Oh, God, please no. And I just remember I was crying as I'm sitting out there just thinking, I don't want to have that be my story, that somehow I trusted and merely assented to this Jesus. I never once had had this life that had been transformed so that when people watched me, they said, that dude loves Jesus because then I've gone to other funerals. You know those funerals? Or at the end of it, it's just Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. And I'm like, oh God, may that be my funeral one day. Paul says, this is faith. Faith is not a game we play. Faith is not something that we just try to convince our children to somehow mimic back for us some words so that they don't go to hell. Faith is real, and at the core of who we are, it is a gospel of a king, and us now coming in a posture of trust, coming in a posture of surrender, and coming in a posture of allegiance. He's the king, and it's something we learn all of our lives. So how do we do this? Well, we're gonna talk more about righteousness next week, but this is the thing we're gonna talk about is this idea of living by faith. So let me put it this way. Living by a posture of trust, living by a posture of surrender, living by a posture of allegiance to the king in such a way that it mimics or it displays the gospel to the world. And Paul now says, quoting Habakkuk 2, this is what the Christian life looks like. Now, that word life comes from this Greek word zao, which, which literally means now at the core of who we are, our nature. Now, this is where it swings back to where I started in the beginning. If we don't have something at our core, at the reality of who we are, the essence of who we are, and specifically trust, allegiance, and surrender, we will live lives that have nothing to do with displaying who Jesus is to the world. The righteous, he says, that we'll talk about next week. This is how they live. It's a story of Jews and Greeks that out throughout time have lived this life. It's the story all throughout the book of Romans of Abraham, this man who lived by faith, that lived uniquely in this place of coming to trust God and to have an allegiance to him and a surrender to him. It's the story of Moses and the people of Israel who weren't, weren't so good at it. It's the story also, though, of King Jesus who came and modeled for us. What does this look like to follow God in that kind of a way? It's the story of the Romans in their time of Paul looking at him and saying, you're it. It's your time. This is your time now to embrace 
grace and live and know the gospel so that the world might know God. And I would say this, it is now landing into our laps because now this is our time. You're going to hear me say this over and over and over again throughout the book of Romans. This is a letter to a group telling them about their time. But this cornerstone and all the other churches in Simi that know Jesus and shoot, all the churches in the world that know him, this is our time through trust and surrender and allegiance to put Jesus Christ on display so that the world might know. We do this waking up every morning because it needs to come out at our home. My kids need to see it. They need to see daddy when he not only succeeds, but when he fails in this whole allegiance and surrender thing to Jesus. It needs to be done at work. It needs to be done at play. And here for just a second, I see a few of you in here that are high school and middle school students. Oh, gosh. Don't buy in to a wrong story. Don't. Jesus is king. He's Lord. He came. He lived a perfect life. He defeated death when he died upon that cross and he rose from the grave in resurrection. He ascended to the Father and he sits as king. And one day that king is coming back. And if you're somebody in here that's, I don't care, even 85 or younger, but I'm talking now right now to high school and middle school students, college students, don't sell out for the wrong dream because you will start then to improvise the wrong dream. Don't do that when you've got this grander one. It's why we get together as saints. We have to remind each other, Jesus is king. We have to sing songs about it. You know, somebody came up and was like, oh, it's so boring. You know, we sing some songs. There's a message. We sing some songs. We give some money. Why do we do that? Because we need to remember. We need to get together and remember this thing. We need to learn what it looks like to improv, trust, and surrender, and allegiance with our money. We need to learn what it looks like with our friendships. We need to learn what it looks like in our marriage, with our parenting. It needs to land down into the very core of who we are. And I'll tell you this, I think improvising or improvisation, improving for the gospel, I think the reason we're so bored in the church is because we think that I've got my little kind of ticket to heaven. I'm now just biding my time, being a good person, maybe sharing my faith a little bit till Jesus comes back. When God has laid in front of us this opportunity to live for him in radical ways through the power of Holy, his Holy Spirit. Don't sell your birthright. Don't sell your birthright for a bowl of soup when God is offering you so much more. And let me just finish this way. We're not doing this because we're bored. We're doing this because in our time and place in Simi Valley, we have a community in West San Fernando Valley, in Moore Park, in T.O., in Camarillo, that need to know Jesus. I would say so many of us are afraid to share our faith because we've, we've never learned like we need to, to trust him and to, to truly bend the knee to him and to surrender and to truly then even come to him in allegiance and live for him. The more that you do that in every aspect of your life, I promise you, no one will be able to shut you up to talk about who Jesus is. And by the way, you might say to yourself, you know, I don't know if I have enough information. Then tell the story of Jesus that you know. I don't care. <laughs> Just tell people. 
I've always told you about my first ever time evangelizing. I didn't know anything. I just knew to sit my friend Dewey down, and I'm just like, oh, you know, and I started telling him about Jesus. And lo and behold, the guy embraced Jesus, is still walking with Jesus. I didn't even know what to do after he said he wanted to follow Jesus. I had to call the pastor up and go, what do I do now? The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by trust. The righteous shall live by surrender. The righteous shall live by allegiance. Cornerstone. Don't sell out when God is offering us so much more. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.